Before the break, we had introduced this section of First Corinthians chapter eleven. I mean, chapter eleven, verses two through sixteen. Although we began with verse three, we indicated that the whole section is concerned with the issue of head covering that has application to us. Well, we also indicated that there is great evidence that the pagans cover their heads during offering of sacrifices or what they call uh, prophetic reading of the entrails. And But uh, those who participate in the sacrifices usually the one offering that is uh, covered and the rest do not. However, that is also uh, used among the Romans to show respect and subserviency to their gods. So it is likely that based on that, that some in Corinth wondered if they should continue to follow the pagan practice, while others say no, or at least imply no, we should terminate our relationship with those kind of practices because the apostles have not taught anything to us about it. So, the issue though, as I mentioned, is that on overall the message of that whole section is that men should not have their head covered during prayer, and likewise, women who wear their hair the way God gave it to them. But they should cover it up if they either cut or shave it. Otherwise, if they wear the way God gave it to them, that's it. We will establish that in detail when we go through this section. We also stated that the apostle did not immediately jump into the matter of head covering, but first praised the Corinthians for remembering the instructions that he gave them, and so as a result, they were holding firm uh, and practicing what he taught them. Then we indicated that ignorance, because of the passage we're going to study, that ignorance is not uh, is something that we say is very deadly, especially in the Christian faith. We studied that whole doctrine of ignorance, but as I said here, our intention is not to uh, go through it, but to just see the mentioned three consequences of ignorance. The first consequence is we consider is that ignorance leads to a person being a religious fanatic. There's knowledge. There's no, I mean, there's see but no knowledge, and so the person becomes a fanatic. The second thing that we saw is that ignorance can lead to blasphemy, in the sense of uh, doing something or acting in a way that belittles God. And one of the, the more popular examples that I, I always use in this kind of thing is warring. That when we worry, we're blaspheming. Because we're saying to God, oh, we've seen something you can handle. Anyway, so that was the second. The third is, we say that it had eternal consequences. Because a person who doesn't know how to 
gets saved or doesn't know that it's through faith in Christ only. That person tries through his or her own work to get into heaven and will not get into heaven because he can't get into heaven by what you do. Therefore, we say that then it is also ignorance that leads to living a lifestyle that is incompatible with truth. Now, therefore, then, the issue is that every one of us should try to expel ignorance out of us. The only way we do that is by receiving information. So we stated our people uh, should do everything to expel it. We are born with ignorance. But we start expelling it by learning the word of God. Now, so the thing we also stated is that the Apostle Paul, he had a strong desire for something to happen with this Corinthians and that strong desire is for them to have knowledge. And so based on all we uh, have to deal with, we say that really when the apostle stated in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that reads again, now I want you to realize that the head of every uh, man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and head of Christ is God. That that whole sentence has one simple thing that it wants to communicate to us. And that is, there is that there is such a concept as hierarchy in heaven and on earth. That's what that verse 3 is concerned with. And we're going to now begin to look at the various parts of it to explain or make case, I mean support our case. But before we did get to that, we have started to look at the word head because that's the key word that tells us we're dealing with hierarchy is the word head so we started to look at the uh, various usages of a, a Greek word kephale that means head and we went through the uh, its use in the Old Testament and we're still uh, you're looking at that it can be used in different ways for example just before we went out of break we said that it can have the meaning of most important, uh, especially as it's used for a stone, in Psalms 118 verse 22, which is where we begin this second session. It is the stone the leaders rejected has become the capstone. Now the phrase capstone is more literally head of a corner. Now the Hebrew phrase, the head of a corner, probably refers to a large stone placed at the corner of a foundation where two rows uh, come together and uh, so some take it to be the keystone or capstone that completed the act of a structure. Of course, some of our English versions render it differently than we have in the NIV. For example, the today's English version rendered it this way. The most important of all. Instead of saying the capstone is rendered the most important of all. And the common English Bible, they rendered it. The main foundation stone. And the new English Bible, of course, used the chief corner stone. Now, our Greek word, though, like is used in the Septuagint, 
is also used with a range of meanings in the New Testament. The most common, of course, is a literal sense as head, part of the body that contains the brain. As we say, you know, people say, use your head. What are they talking? Use your brain. But when we talk mostly uh, in a literal sense of head, we really mean head. And that's the way uh, the word is used in First Corinthians 12 verse 21, in a literal sense. First Corinthians 12 verse 21 reads, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head, that's little, cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now the idea then of taking head though as a, uh, a reference to a person is one that we've already noted in the first session as it was used in the Greek of the Septuagint. Now the sense of head representing a person is also used in Paul's reaction to the Jews for not accepting the gospel in Acts 18 verse 8. Acts oh. Acts 18 verse 6 sorry. Acts 18 verse 6 reads But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them your blood be on your heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, the idiom, your blood be on your heads, is to be understood that the Jews will take the blame for rejecting the apostles' gospel message. Thus, in some English versions, avoided the literal idiom and rendered it in an interpretative manner. For example, today's English version simply says, You yourselves must take the blame for it. While the common English Bible reads, You are responsible for your own faith. Figuratively, though, our Greek word is used to denote superior rank. Superior rank. Hence, the word head is used primarily to indicate Jesus preeminent status in the church and so has authority not only over the uh, church but over the universe according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 now we are looking at the word head and I in the first half, I mentioned the fact that there's so much written about that word head by scholars. As I'm going to be, you, if you when I make, it, make a reference to a number, uh, shortly. Ephesians 1 verse 22 reads, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, now those who take the word head, 
in this passage to mean that Christ is the source or origin of the church. That's how some understand it. Now, this is possible, but the problem is there is no evidence that the Greek word translated head should be taken as source or origin in, in this particular passage. In fact, Dr. Wayne Gruden provides a survey of 2,336 instances of the use of a Greek word in the writings of 36 Greek authors. He indicated that of these, over 2,000 denotes the actual physical head of a man or animal, while of the remaining 302 uh, metaphorical uses, 49 of them apply to a person of superior authority or rank, or a ruler, or a ruling party. Now, no instance, according to him, were discovered in which our Greek word has the meaning original source. Never appears. So, it is best to understand that the word, the Greek word, is really as a reference to the preeminent status of Christ with respect to the church. So anyway, superior rank implies authority. Remember what I say, concept of hierarchy. So superior uh, rank, again, implies authority. So that our Greek word has a concept of authority when used in connection with living beings. Now this qualification of living beings is important because our Greek word can also be used figuratively in connection with things with the meaning the uppermost part or extremity or even end or point. So it is in this sense that our Greek word is used in First Peter chapter 2 verse 7. First Peter Chapter 2, verse 7. First Peter 2, verse 7 reads, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this stone, the builders rejected, has become the cast stone. Now, of course, this passage contains a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22 that we cited previously. So that the phrase... The capstone is more literally from the Greek head of corner. Now the literal word head here really mean, it can mean end in the sense of the point where two corners come together. Of course we have already indicated that the phrase is translated differently in our English versions. So in any event, examination of our Greek word translated head used in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, indicates that with respect to persons, the word has the meaning of leader or one with a superior rank. So in our passage of 1 Corinthians 11 3, then, the, that sense is the sense of someone in charge 
or leader. So that the Greek word conveys the concept of authority or hierarchy. Hierarchy. Now in effect then, the word head is used here three times in our verse, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. But in each case, it is used figuratively for hierarchy, meaning of authority of one over another. Hence, although the word hierarchy is not used in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, but that is what is conveyed in the word head used in the verse. So be that as it may, it is our assertion that knowledge the apostle wants the Corinthians to have is that there is such a thing or such a concept of hierarchy both in heaven and earth. Now hierarchy has meaning only when there is relationship between two or more persons in which order of authority is of concern, say in a functional unit. Now this being the case, the apostle mentions three relationships in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 where the where authority is of concern. But before we uh, get to the three relationships, the apostle mentioned in our passage, we need to comment briefly on the concept of authority since that may be misunderstood in our present passage. So we should be careful to understand that authority does not imply inferior nature of the one who is under it in a functional unit or system. We mean that in a functional unit that consists of persons, the nature of the one with authority is not different from that of the one under it. Instead, authority means that someone has to be in charge, even when you have people of equal qualifications. Take for example, in the university system of functional unit, I say, a department has a department head. Now this, this head usually has the same terminal degree as the other professors in the department. However, one of them is chosen as the head to oversee the others. Now this does not mean necessarily mean that the one who is in charge is the most intelligent, but that the person has been delegated the authority to oversee the running of the department. Now this situation is quite similar to that of a Christian marriage. Now Christian husbands and wives have equal standing before God. Firstly, as there is no distinction of status between male and female in Christ as according to Galatians 3 verse 28. Galatians 3 verse 28. Now this, this kind of thing is important uh, 
because uh, you know I I deal with people from all over the place, but something I had in com- in conversation with some people having marital problem, and uh, I you know the husband smartly said, "Well, I I'm doing it just to discipline my wife." I said, "What? Do what?" Okay, that's not you're never caught to discipline your. That's for your children. You don't discipline your wife. But that's because the person doesn't understand this issue of there's a difference between being under authority and abusing it. Or the person doesn't understand that there is equal standing. Husband and wife are on equal standing before God. However, one has to be in charge. It happens to be the husband. But that doesn't mean uh, any kind of inferiority. So this is what we have in Galatians 3.28 where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, this passage does not state that there is, uh, I mean the passage does not state there is no functional difference between male and female in Christ. But that there is no difference in status. Since after salvation, a female retains all that define her as a, a woman. Likewise, a man retains all that define him as such. So there's no change in the function. But the status is what changed. Now that's, that there's no difference between male and female in Christ means there's no difference in status. But... There is a difference in function. You have to remember that. There's a difference in function. And that's what causes a lot of problems. Of course, again, go to ignorance. Because people don't realize this status and function are two different things. Secondly, though, the equal standing of Christian husbands and wives is conveyed with a concept of both being heirs of God and First Peter, chapter three, verse seven. First Peter, chapter three, verse seven. First Peter, chapter three, verse seven. Reads, husbands, in the same way, be considerate. As you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs, that's the key, heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, fighting husbands and wives, your prayer don't go beyond the ceiling. That's I just a very way to uh, explain it. When he said nothing will hinder your prayer, that means if I fight and all the time, your prayer don't go beyond the ceiling of your house. Anyway, now the sense of equal standing of the Christian husband and wives is given then in that phrase when he said, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now an alternative translation that is more literal is this way. As fellow heirs also of the grace of life. So it is clearer that both 
husband and wife are fellow heirs before God in the sense that both of them are the recipients of eternal life. Hence, there is no doubt then, there is no difference in the standing of Christian husbands and wives before God. But there is certainly a difference in function between them. Now by the way, both husband and wife have the same human nature as believers. They also have become participants in the divine nature as stated in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4. Second Peter Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4. It is through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we do see that we should understand that authority doesn't mean inferior in nature between the person who has it and the one under it. Now another fact we need to understand about authority is that it has to do with order in connection with function or operation. Order that's involved in function or operation. In effect, proper functioning within a unit requires a kind of hierarchy. Now this means that those in a system of authority function under the authority in such a way that it does not alter the nature of those whose function within that uh, unit. So that is why it has to be in in marriage. One has to be in authority because marriage is a functional unit. So one has to be in authority and again, like I say, it is the man. I know some people don't like hearing that kind of thing and I don't care. This is the truth. And that's what we're concerned with. So anyway, with this comment then on authority that I've made, we proceed to consider the three relationships the apostle stated that is the basis of our assertion that there is such thing as a concept of hierarchy both in heaven and earth. If you don't understand these two things I said about authority, you have a problem understanding what is in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians that we are looking at. Anyway, the first relationship Apostle Paul mentioned is that between man and Christ. As in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, The head of every man is Christ. Now this sentence, probably is better translated, Christ is the head of every man, as reflected in majority of our English versions. Anyway, what is it then that the apostle meant in this sentence? What does it really mean? Now to answer this question, 
there are three observations we should note. First, the apostle did not use a Greek word, anthropos, that would suggest that Christ's authority is over humanity in the sense of men and women, although true, he is. But the apostle used a Greek word, anair, that in our verse of study means man, in the sense of an adult person who is male as opposed, as opposed to a woman. Now the very use of the word man conveys that it is a concept of order and so authority that is involved in what the apostle described since man is first in order of God's creation of humanity. Now the Greek word the apostle used uh, nowhere in the New Testament has a sense of humanity. Now in some contexts, the Greek word may have the meaning of a person that could, uh, that could refer to a man or a woman as in the happiness or blessing that belongs to the individual whose sins are forgiven as Apostle Paul used a Greek word in quoting from the Old Testament scripture that he quoted in Romans chapter 4 verse 8. Romans chapter 4 verse 8. He said, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, it's not only a man, but also a woman who is blessed because of forgiveness of sin. Therefore, the use of man here is intended to represent men and women. Now, the same concept is implied in the use of the plural of a Greek word in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Matthew 12, verse 41 reads, The men of Nineveh will stand up at a judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. See that phrase, men of Nineveh, refers to the people of Nineveh that include men, women, and children. Now, in our context, our Greek word has the meaning of human as an adjective. I mean, uh, in, one, sorry, in one context, that's why we find the word being used in the, as an adjective human, as it is used by James in describing the destructive nature of anger or the destructive effect of anger in James chapter 1 verse 20. James 1 verse 20. 
James chapter 1 verse 20 It reads For man's anger Does not bring about the righteous life That God desires Now it is because man here Refers to human That the translators of Revised English Bible Use the word human In their translation Because they say For human anger Does not promote God's justice Now this notwithstanding There is no passage Where our Greek word Is directly used for humanity So that uh, Is Usage in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 Is for man As opposite to a woman And by the way The use of man Here refers to both Believer And unbelieving man Although The apostle was probably focused more On the believer But because of the concept of authority Involved What he stated has to apply to man absolutely without distinction of spiritual status. So anyway, our first observation is that the apostle used a Greek word that means an adult male as opposite of a woman. A second thing a second observation The apostle did not use the word Jesus Instead He used the word Christ That is Translated from a Greek word That may mean Anointed one Or the Messiah or the Christ Or the word can be used For the personal name Ascribed to Jesus In our passage of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 11 verse 3 The apostle Use the word as a personal name of Jesus. Now, if the apostle meant merely Jesus as a name, one wonders the reason he did not plainly use the word Jesus in describing his authority in relation to man. You see, the name Jesus is one that describes Christ in his relationship to humanity. The angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus. That was the name he gave to Mary as the name of the son she was to give birth to in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Matthew Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 reads She will give birth to a son And you are to give him the name Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins Now the Holy Spirit Through the human author of Hebrews Used the name Jesus To identify the Son of God in relationship to humanity, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Hebrews 
Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 reads, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So we are in the same family with him because of his humanity. He identified with humanity. Hence, we would expect Apostle Paul to use the word Jesus in indicating that he is the head of man. But that was not the case. Now the reason the apostle used the word Christ is probably because he wanted to present him as the God-man with emphasis on his deity. Now quite often, when the apostle used the word Jesus, he will add the word Lord to indicate he is concerned with the deity of Jesus. For example, when he stated that the Corinthians assembled to worship in the name of Jesus, he supplied the word Lord to indicate he implied the deity of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4. First Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4 reads, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So, here he keeps using Lord to indicate, he's talking about the deity. The apostle conveyed the deity of Jesus by relating him to God the Father. That's one way he did that. This we find in several of his epistles. Now, in the Apostles' Prayer for Unity Among the Romans, he described the relationship of Jesus to God, the Father, that conveys the deity of Jesus, as we read in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Romans Romans Chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. It reads, May the God who gives endurance and courage and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Now, both of them will feel his function with his concern with the deity. But look at he continues, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See here the apostle used the phrase Lord Jesus Christ in verse six to indicate the deity of Jesus, and of course when he say God and Father, that is, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Father 
will indicate same nature or relationship. Now the the apostle also did the same in his second epistle to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter one verse three. Hold on to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter one verse three. It is it reads, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Again, praise be to the God and the Father. We can say praise be to the God that is to show the member that's involved, the member of the D of the uh, Triune God. So, so here it says the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, so, having indicated that Jesus is God, both by using the word Father and the phrase Lord Jesus, the apostle later in, on this, in the same second epistle dropped the word Christ but left the phrase our Lord Jesus. Still in that second Corinthians, look at chapter 11, verse 31. He's already indicated to show his, his deity. And so, as soon as he's done that, and later on he just dropped out the word Christ. Second Corinthians 11 verse 31 reads, The God, again, and we can say that is the Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Thus the apostle will often use the word Lord with Jesus alone to convey his deity. Now in doing this, he communicated that Jesus is both God and man in one person. However, when the apostle intends to convey that Jesus is God without adding the word Lord, he often used the word Christ. Now consider 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. All we are arguing is there is a reason he didn't use the word Jesus. He said he used Christ. And we are trying to establish why that is what I have just told you is because he wants to show the God man. First uh, Corinthians, oh no, sorry, I'm First Corinthians chapter three, verse twenty-three. First Corinthians chapter three, verse twenty-three reads, "And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God." Now the same we studied this in detail, but just for comment here. See that sentence Christ is of God is literally Christ of God. There's no is in the, in the uh, Greek text. It's just Christ of God. 
Now, although the literal phrase is subject to three possible interpretations, but in all, all in all, the apostle in the phrase Christ of God intended to convey that Christ is the Son of God, which is tantamount to stating that he is God. Now, another example where apostle conveyed the deity of Jesus by using only the word Christ concerns the matter of sin. The apostle conveyed that a believer that harms the conscience of another, especially a weak or immature believer, that that person sins against God. And this is the way he gave it in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 12. First Corinthians 8 verse 12. It reads, when you, when you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their, their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You sin against Christ. I see the apostle knew his scripture, that unless he recognized Jesus as God, he would not imply that a person sins against Christ, since every sin is ultimately against God. No doubt the apostle knew his scripture. He knew that from David's confession of his sins of adultery and murder. David committed adultery against a man and a wife, he murdered a person. But when he confessed his sin, he didn't mention any of them. He talked about sinning against God. In Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51, Verse 4. Psalm 51, verse 4. Here is a confession. They mentioned having wronged uh, Uriah or Meshiba. He says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. So, Paul knows about this passage, so he knew that sin ultimately is against God. Now, it's not only from this passage the apostle learned that sin is against God, so also from the confession of Israel, as recorded in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 25. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 25 Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 25 It is 
Let us lie down in our shame. An important word that doesn't exist pretty much today. And that's why people do whatever they want to do. And wherever there's no concept of shame, they will just do whatever they want to do. But it says, let us lie down in our shame. Have the sense of shame. And let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God. Both we and our fathers, from our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. So the point is that the apostle could not refer to sin against Christ unless he recognized Christ as God. Take another another example. 1 Corinthians 9.21 1 Corinthians 9.21 It is to those not having the law I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free of, from God's law but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. Now, here the phrase, Christ's law is the apostle's way of recognizing the deity of Jesus. Since the law of Christ ultimately refers to the law of God. Hence, when the apostle wants to refer to the deity of Jesus, he will at times use the word Christ without adding the word Lord. To indicate he is concerned with the deity of Jesus. So anyway, it is not only when the apostle refers to the deity of Jesus that he used the word Christ alone, but also when he described his humanity. When he described his humanity. So that's, in this case, the death of Jesus is that which is only possible as it pertains to his humanity. So that when his death and resurrection are referenced, the apostle used the word Christ, as we read in Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Romans 14 verse 9 reads For this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So this observation that we made about Christ implies that the apostle will use the word Christ alone either to describe the deity of Jesus or his humanity with the, with the idea of uh, he did, did being involved. So nonetheless then, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, the apostle used the word Christ because he wanted to emphasize that Jesus is God-man. That's why he used the word Christ. 
to emphasize that he is God man. Since he used the word Christ a second time in reference to God. The first usage is reference to man. The second is reference to the word God. So when he said the first usage here, Christ, he is trying to convey to us that Jesus, both his humanity and deity. Now the apostle felt though that it will be it will not be appropriate to use the word Jesus. That is the name that introduced the Son of God in his humanity when re- uh, relating him to God. That will be we're going to see uh, in the second passage, I mean the second phrase of using it. Now so, in order to relate him to God, he will normally use the word Lord and if it's not there, uh, it's very difficult to see him uh, actually conveying clearly deity. So many times he does that. Therefore then, he used the word Christ the first time so that the reader will recognize he was more focused on the deity of Christ than his humanity. So anyway, our second observation is that the apostle did not use the word Jesus. Instead, he used the word Christ because he wanted to describe Jesus as both God and man in one person. He couldn't do that really using the word just Jesus. So he used Christ to show this unique person, God and man in one person. Thought, we should observe that there is a problem with the phrase of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that we're looking at when it says, head of every man. Head of every man. Now the problem is not readily apparent in the English as it is in the Greek. The problem is how to relate the word head to the phrase every man because of the word man is what we call the genitive in the Greek. Then here then, there are two possibilities. The word head could be seen as part of the whole man. Since Christ is the head, in the sentence of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The implication is that Christ is a part of man. A part of man. That is, that he belongs to humanity. That's part one way to look at it. Now, this interpretation makes a good sense in that it answers the question as to why God is not said to be the head of man in the context. Why not say God is the head of man? Why just say Christ? Because he wants to focus on the unique person who is God and man. So that's one reason that he will uh, do so. Since we know that the only member of the Godhead that is part of humanity is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on human nature in addition to his divine nature, so he could die for our sins. Now, another interpretation of the Greek phrase is to consider the man as being subordinate to the head, which is Christ. And the implication then 
is that Christ is over man. One is a part, the other one is over. That's the two interpretations. If we say uh, Christ, head of man, or of every man, that means he's part of humanity, or he's over humanity. So in effect then, the issue will be, which of these two interpretations did the apostle intend? Did he mean to say that Christ is part of humanity, or he meant to say Christ is over humanity? Now it seems to me that this is a case where both concepts were in the mind of the apostle when he penned down the sentence, the head of every man is Christ that we are considering. In effect then, the apostle had a mind that Christ is part of humanity since he took on the human nature so he could die for our sins. But also that he is over man in the matter of authority. He is over man in matter of authority. So then there's three observations that we have made enable us to interpret what the apostle meant in the sentence. Again, look at the first part when he says, First Corinthians 11 verse 3, he says, The head of every man is Christ. Or Christ is the head of every man. What, he, what does he really mean? Well, he meant this. That man functions under the authority of Christ as the God-man. That man functions under the authority of Christ as God-man. In effect, man is directly under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is God. The God-man that shares a common nature with humanity than any other member of the Godhead. Man is directly under. We're going to see that a woman in a sense sure is first under a man. And that's a little bit different thing. Here man is directly under the authority of the God man. So this is what the apostle meant to convey when he said the head of every man is Christ. Again that Jesus Christ or that man functions under the authority of uh, Christ. Well, there's much more to this uh, sentence and the next part of it, but uh, uh, let me end though by reminding you of an important knowledge that the Holy Spirit wants you to have, which is there is such a thing as the concept of hierarchy in heaven and on earth. The truth of the matter, many people don't know this. They don't understand authority. They don't understand hierarchy. And without it, you have nothing but chaos, which is part of what we experience in this country. Too many people don't have the concept that there is such a thing as hierarchy, both here and in heaven. But once you begin to get that concept, it changes a whole lot of things about you. You begin to recognize authority. Many people in this country just don't do that. They say oh, authority, they talk about authority, but very, when it really comes down to it, very few people really understand that and apply it. Because if you apply it, 
you know how to deal with husband and wife, children and, and their parents and teachers and so on. But anyway, the apostle wants the Holy Spirit through the apostle wants us to go home. Thinking about this one concept. There is such a thing as hierarchy. And that is there's an authority chain. And you have to see where do you belong in that authority chain and function according to it. If you are the head of it, you use it wisely. If you are under it, you know how to submit to it. All this, just in that one sentence, the, the head of every man is Christ. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet. You do not have life yet. So that if you die now, you go straight into the lake of fire. But here's the good news. God loves you. He didn't just say, I love you. He put it into action. He demonstrated it because love is best known by his action. So this is the action. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who, although God, left heaven with all his glory, came to this planet to take on a human nature so he could go and carry the penalty for your sins and my sins. So he lived on this planet, preached, did a lot of miracles to demonstrate who he is, to prove when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the love, no one comes to the Father except by him, to prove that. Or when he claims, when he says, if we believe in me, though you die, you will still live. So he died, rose again, to prove that. So everywhere, Christ demonstrated that he is God who took on a human form to die for your sins. So, here's the thing. It all depends what you think about him. If you think about him as a, a God-man who left heaven to take the penalty of your sins so that when he was crucified, he was buried the third day, he came out of the grave. If you believe that, you have eternal life. So that's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. His deity. The Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His If you believe that, you will receive eternal life. On the other hand, if you say, I don't care, well, you are knocking at the day, at the gate of a burning hell. When we say burning, it's not much of fire as it is a horrible suffering of the type that the human mind at this point cannot even conceive. So, if you ignore the offer of salvation, that's what you've been facing. Where nothing good from God will come to you. It is an absolute place of suffering. No, nothing good will come from God to you. Right now, you say you don't believe in him, you're enjoying his air, you're enjoying his son, you're enjoying his rain, everything, he gives it to you. But think about hell as a place where everything is cut off. Nothing good from God. That is an awful darkness that is unimaginable. That's why Christ came so you don't go there. So believe in him and escape it. Holy Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to begin to understand the concept of hierarchy both in heaven and earth so we can function in that way. This is a request in Christ's name.
Amen.